Scott, Pete Davidson, has been a case of arrested development ever since his fire fire fire. <laughs> You're trying to get ready. Take two. Okay. <laughs> Scott, Pete Davidson, has been a case of arrested development ever since his firefighter fire. <laughs> <laughs> this is good. This is for like the outtakes at the end of the podcast. Okay. Uh, take three. Take three. Ready? Cue me. Cue me. Three, two, one, action. Scott. Pete Davidson has been a case of arrest development ever since his firefighter father. I can't get through it. There's too many. There's too much alliteration. Scott, Pete Davidson, has been a case of arrest development ever since his firefighter father died when he was seven. As his younger sister, Maude Apatow, heads off to college, Scott, now in his mid-twenties, spends his days smoking weed, hanging with the guys, and hooking up with his best friend, Belle Pally. But when his mother, Marissa Tomei, starts dating a loudmouth firefighter, Bill Burr, it sets off a chain of events that will force Scott to grapple with his grief and take his first tentative steps toward moving forward in life. How's that sound? I don't quite understand the correlation between arrested development and the traumatic death of a parent at a young age. That usually forces you to grow up, doesn't it? I mean, not speaking for every instance, but... <laughs> uh, you're not speaking for Pete Davidson, who probably uh, lived through these exact events here. That's very uh, distasteful of you. Uh, is that actually biographical? I have no idea. Oh, yeah, yeah. His father was a New York City firefighter who died in service during the 9-11 attacks. You, I think you're disrespecting all of America when you attack a 9-11 firefighter. Is the 9-11 aspect of his story part of the plot, or it just says he's a firefighter? Uh, in, in Pete Davidson's real life, that is the case. No, I know in real life it was September 11. But uh, the movie version, the small summary that is on Wikipedia, it has not uh, described whether or not it's it happened. But we can only hope. I do know that the numbers wouldn't add up to Pete Davidson's age at the moment, which is he's 26. Oh, that's 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 only a little bit older than I am. Anyway, it doesn't matter. He was born in 1983. If he was seven years old, that'd be in 2000, not 2001. So, hmm. it's a little suspicious. Right, I guess we should identify what the podcast is. Uh, this is the great show known as Product Day Plus, um, Quarantine Edition. My name is Hunter, and you're Hugh. Uh, and it's Quarantine Edition because we're not actually doing anything related to a project or a film besides our hit segment bonus features, which we're going to we've condensed condensed the show down uh, so we can figure stuff out you know yeah project a plus for the time being is a husk of its former self <laughs> it's it's pathetic it's sad almost but i do think there is a mercy in uh, trimming this podcast down to something <laughs> a mercy for you for sure that is true yeah a mercy for the editor hmm, who is you and we have to accept these sweet mercies in these difficult times no, it doesn't seem like your life has been so difficult recently. I mean, you thought you lost your job, you didn't lose it. 
maybe you lost it. Maybe you lost it again since the last time we talked. No, the the next roster has me on it for the same hours. That's very weird. But I did just receive the stimulus uh, payment, seven hundred fifty dollars that appeared, um, because my my claim has now been processed. Oh. So now you could buy uh, expensive Blu-rays like me. You could buy True Stories. Well, I don't get as much money as you do. In fact, I get less than half of the amount you do. Yeah, but you're working too, so... Even factoring that in, I think it's less than you do. <laughs> yeah, mine's, mine's already out in July, though, so... Okay. Uh, and I, the reason that I was late for this recording... Uh-huh. Uh, ...was because I had to fill in the reporting stuff in order to get the money. Can I get that sweet moolah? Shall we get into the meat of our podcast today? Yep, and we've got the Corona content out of the way. We've got the Pete Davidson content out of the way. <laughs> the two most important um, strands of life in the podcast. Bonus features, bonus, bonus features, bonus features, bonus, bonus features. Hugh. What have you been watching? Well, uh, once again, I have, for the most part, neglected my duties mm. and uh, only scuppered together the viewing of a film at the very last minute, uh-huh. shortly before the recording of this podcast. I'll do two of mine, and then you do yours, and then I'll do two, as our, as, as, as our custom has been. Yes, I'll be sandwiched in between your more substantial viewings this week. So, Hugh, uh, a little bit ago on this podcast, uh, I talked about watching the first Mobile Suit Gundam movie. Do you remember that? Yeah. Yeah, I remember. So, I I followed this up uh, a couple of days ago. Uh, like you, I wasn't really in the film-watching mood that much, uh, but I still managed to watch four movies. Um, but, so, I watched Mobile Suit Gundam 2, Soldiers of Sorrow, and I don't think that this film is quite as successful at condensing its source television show down into movie length as much as the first one is and i think the seams show a little bit more on this uh in this film uh there's one uh sequence in particular that feels like totally cut to ribbons where they basically like have excised an entire battle sequence but keep it in as a montage and i was like what the fuck is going on um, so mm. there, there, it had a little bit of like accidental surrealist surrealism, but uh, it's still pretty good. The uh, mecha action is as good as ever. And uh, I don't know that that title Soldiers of Sorrow. Very accurate. It's all about uh, people being sad and then getting in giant mechs and then um, killing, you know, enemy combatants. Uh, so, OK, so in, just in terms of uh, genre or style of film, would it be fair to describe it as mecha-fictional? Uh, so anyway, the next movie I watched was, is a Roger Corman joint. Uh, and a little bit ago, I purchased this Blu-ray collection from one of her podcasts, The Important Cinema Club, uh, where they put out two of Roger Corman's uh, public domain movies, Little Shop of Ours, which I talked about already on the show, and Wait, a podcast that puts out movies? Yep, they release, um, uh, what do you call them, um, that region? Movies? No, let me finish. I'm trying to, what's the, the public domain movies on Blu-ray and record commentary tracks and stuff for them? 
They sell them wow. for like five dollars. Yep. Where do they get the prints? Uh, I don't know. They're probably just on YouTube or some other public what they, source. They sell YouTube rips. <laughs> yeah, they're kind of like deliberately shitty. Is kind of the, the oh, really? charm of them. Yeah, yeah. It's not like restored uh, copies of these films. Right. So they've just sourced it from wherever they can find it on the web somewhere. Yeah. Presumably. I mean, I don't know the specifics, but yeah, again, or like I said, I, like I said, they write uh, lighter notes and do like audio commentary and, and like special features and stuff. Mm. Um, so I found these and again, they're only like, uh, I think they're, I think it's like $5 Canadian, which is not that much money. So uh, I bought, a, I bought, I bought two of them. Uh, one being this one and the other one being Bella Lugosi meets a Brooklyn gorilla. Um, which speaking of Bella Lugosi, he's in this movie. Uh, oh no, wait, it's the other one, I think. I can't remember. Where am I? Who are you? No, it's Boris Karloff. My bad. You know, I've never seen any of those universal horror movies. Hmm. Have you? No, but I've heard they have universal appeal. Anyway, so I watched uh, The Terror, uh, which um, kind of has a little bit in common with uh, Corman's like sort of storied Poe films. Uh, except for the key difference being is that it's really cheap and kind of boring. <laughs> so it should be retitled the terrible. <laughs> shut shut up. Uh, it's not it's not bad. There it's got some qualities that are enjoyable, like uh, the aforementioned Boris Karloff, and also a very uh, strange lady performed by Jack Nicholson, who's played a cavalry officer in the Napoleonic Army. <laughs> uh, and this this film is nominally set in like rural Germany, but everyone just speaks it like you know California and, and American accents, except for Boris Karloff, mm. I guess. Which is it's got a little bit of fun cognitive dissonance, um, but it's kind of just like a standard haunted castle story. There's not that much that's interesting about it, to be honest. Um, but it is interesting, not so much for the film itself as to what this the footage from this film was put to, or the use that it was put to, rather. Uh, which is, have you ever seen the Peter Bogdanovich film Targets? I have not. Well, there's a pretty famous sequence in that where Boris Karloff is like hosting. He's playing like a fictional like version of himself, basically. And he's hosting this um, like movie marathon of his own works. And this is the film because Targets is also a Roger Corman production. This is the film that plays in Targets. So it's, it's more famous uh, not for itself than itself. And there's a reason for that. Uh, anyway, what did, what did you watch? Do you know who Boris Carlos' favorite composer is? <laughs> Shut the fuck up. I'm just asking. Uh, yes. Oh, you do? Yep. Who is it? It's Beethoven. No, it's uh, <laughs> it's Boris Karl Orff. <laughs> it's Boris. Shut the fuck up. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, what what film did you watch? Uh, rapidly I was cruising for a short enough film to squeeze in before I was forced to read uh, two chapters of crisp Crytonian <laughs> prose in preparation for the two podcasts we're, we're recording this week I must say forced to this is, this is a podcast that was entirely your idea yeah but you forced me to actually go through with that <laughs> <laughs> it not, just would have been another idea in the ether that would have vanished as soon as it left my lips. 
but no. Oh, you're such a complainer. You were like, yes, let's do this thing. Anyway, anyway. Go ahead. Um, I was cruising, cruising for films, um, and uh, I landed upon a 84-minute film mm-hmm. by the name of L'Argent. Mm, the Robert Brisson film. That's right. That's right. I was actually uh, hoping to watch Diary of a Country Priest, but it wasn't available, so I watched this one instead, which I had come across recently on a list of the 100 best films of the 1980s, I think on Slant or something, mm. and they put this as number one. I was like, oh, that's an interesting choice. Yep. So I decided to check it out. And you know what? I'm going to be a little controversial here, but I'm going to say it. Good film. I think this is a contender for one of the best films by... No, that doesn't really work, does it? Because the one-off the one of kind of softens it. But this is a contender for best last film by a great director. Mm. Um, his his powers have certainly not diminished with age, or had not diminished with age because he's dead now. So all the all the Bressonian hallmarks are present in this film. Mm. Um, so it's very similar to, for example, Pickpocket and A Man Escaped, and I'm sure a number of other of his films that I haven't seen. Those are the only two I'd seen prior to this one. Mm-hmm. So we have the use of non actors for the mm. most part uh very affectless performances mm. um, i'm gonna get technical but in an ignorant kind of way when i say because i don't know for sure and i don't know the correct terminology but it's the non-wide angle lens is what he tends to use so everything kind of has a claustrophobic look yeah in addition to that is the absence of music although in this case it's the total absence of music um, there is diegetic music at one point in the film, and of course it's classical as it tends to be with Bresson, mm. but there's no non-diegetic music that, you know, comes into the film like a transcendental sunbeam. Yeah, yeah. What? And <laughs> um, so this is, this is kind of bleaker than some of the other works. It was <laughs> loosely based... It's kind of say something. Yeah. This is loosely based on a Tolstoy short story, and it centers around uh, a counterfeit bill that leads to the destruction of a man's life, initially through no fault of his own, but uh, by the end of the film, he uh, has become a murderer. Mm. Yeah, just like we're going to by the end of the podcast. Hmm. And uh, as usual, uh, most of the action is alighted and... uh, there's the characteristic sort of abrupt shift of scene and focus on kind of mundane, prosaic details that surround the action. Uh-huh. The style is brutally effective, I think. I think this is definitely something that I would recommend you check out. Yeah, I've been thinking about watching that, actually. It's quite haunting and beautiful in its own way. Mm. I was reminded at points of Ozu in terms of the style which I guess is fitting because, um, what's his name? Paul Schrader lumped him together with uh, Ozu and yeah. who was the third director? I don't remember. Okay. In his book about... Yeah, transcendental style. The transcendental style in cinema. Dreyer. Dreyer. Hmm. 
I've only seen, uh, prior to the filmmakers who I've never had much interest in. I've only seen Passion of Joan of Arc, that's it. And it's never never a film that I found anything more than, like, a academic interest towards, you know? Hmm. But, you know, whatever. Maybe there's depths there. Maybe as I get older, I'll, become, I'll appreciate Dreyer more. Probably not, though, because uh, he seems like an extremely religious filmmaker. <laughs> and at least, uh, at least um, you know, Brisson uh, always seemed to have questioned his own Catholicism. And yeah. uh, never made it anything that was, um, you know, anything other than, uh, I mean, basically it's kind of like a Bergman-esque world that he presents, I think. It's very, yeah, uh, struggling with faith. Yeah. Um, and uh, with, in the absence of evidence, I mean, that's, that's what strikes yeah. me as Bergman-y about his worldview, at least in the single film of his that I've seen. Mm. So... The style is actually not, in a funny way, not dissimilar to uh, Fassbender. Mm. Even though Fassbender obviously has the whole strain of melodrama through his important yeah. films. Yeah. Um, and that's completely absent in Bresson. Yeah. The kind of matter-of-fact filmmaking style and even the muted European film stock mm. was kind of similar. Mm. Yeah, I could, I could buy that. I can kind of imagine how people can be put off by Bresson's style. Mm. And there's certainly something austere about it, or superficially austere about it. It's like he's got his own principles of dogma, as yeah, it were. Yeah. For sure. Um, that he adheres to. But I actually find the the ultimate result quite affecting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, me too. At least, in, at least in Pickpocket. I really want to watch, I think I'm going to watch uh, the, uh, De- the Devil, probably. Because mm. I think I found a copy in, or maybe I did, but I want to watch it. So you should watch the Devils too. That's good. I have that on DVD, a British DVD even. Me too. And I got from the BFI. We probably have the same one. The one that's still censored. Is it censored? Uh, it's, it's like the most. It's mostly restored. not censored, but there's like one sequence that is notorious that. Uh, I don't think has ever received a physical media release. It's yeah. been screened, but so it's as decensored as we can access on physical. Media. Yes, yes. I think the notorious moment from that, or the infamous moment from that, is um, one of the nude nuns. Is it the masturbation thing? Using yeah, a human bone as a dildo. Yeah. Uh, so uh, shall I go through my uh, my two quick little flicks? No, I'll skip him this week. Nope, I'm not going to. Because, Hugh, you know what? Uh, I've been watching a lot of films that I would describe as sort of, uh, you know, comfort food. Stuff that hasn't really challenged me. Definitely some stuff that I really like, but uh, stuff that, um, I don't know, recently it just feels, feels like I've been watching a lot of films that uh, haven't quite lived up to my expectations for them. You know what I mean? Mm. Um, well, and I'm happy to say that yesterday and today... I watched two films that I would say are close, both close, to stone-cold masterpieces. Mm. Two very different titles. Uh, because yesterday I decided to spend a little time with my good old friend George R. or George A. Romero and watched... Whoa, it. I was like... <laughs> what? What? I thought you were going to say George R. R. Martin. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And watched... Uh, 
Uh, has there been a movie based on any of his? Uh, I'm sure there has. That's what I was just looking up now. I'm sure like he's been involved in a screenplay at least of a shitty film. Let's find out know. very quickly. I'm gonna look it up too. Uh, Doorways, the TV movie. Night Flyers. Oh, I guess that was based on his novella. Yeah. Yeah, Doorways, the TV movie looks like the first thing. Okay. Jon Snow meets Rick Grimes, video short creator. Uh, I don't think that's anything. <laughs> Alright, uh, should I fucking do it? Should you talk about doorways? Should I talk about George A. Romero, the actual auteur yes. behind the film that I watched today? I watched a little film called Dawn of the Dead, which I'd never seen mm. before. Have you seen Dawn of the Dead? I have. Uh, and I basically thought this film was uh, pretty close to being perfection. <laughs> I don't know what else to say. Uh, it's just I've a, actually got uh, the DVD that features Dario Argento's version. Mm, that's funny. Well, there's several different versions of real Wikipedia. I actually watched the extended version. Mm. Uh, I'd be kind of interested to see the theatrical version, at least the American. I'd be interested to watch all three. But Argento is a producer of this film, actually. It's kind mm. of strange. And he was, like, sort of key in getting the money together. Um, which I think is weird. And also, he's also credited, because obviously Goblin did the score. And the reason that they did that is because you see he was the producer. But anyway, Dawn of the Dead. Uh, I, you know, I was expecting it to be good. But uh, I was just, I was surprised at how potent it still feels. Uh, in a in a world which has been inundated by fucking shitty zombie movies and television shows, you know, uh, it's you know I, I figured that the going back to a film that's as influential in creating sort of the zombie like idea and popular culture as this one was would you know feel sort of leached and dried out because of the the inferior depictions that sometimes happens, you know. Mm-hmm. But uh, I was really surprised on how, like, bleak uh, and gory and violent this movie is. Uh, and also just um, how it manages to function as, you know, social and political commentary without, like, um, diluting this, the propulsive, like, violence and, and gore that, you know, makes it fun, too, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I was just incredibly impressed by the sort of um, wielding together of all these different strands. Uh, I will say one thing I thought was sort of distracting was that one of the lead actors looked exactly like Hugh Laurie, <laughs> which I thought was a little odd. <laughs> um, I mean, obviously not his fault, but uh, I and I, I just like, you know, I mean, obviously the setting is so like perfect for a zombie movie you know and i just i just find this film to be so ingenious and in how it is set up and how it how it functions i don't know it just feels so expertly put together i mean even if some of this stuff is like amateurish in the way that all am- independent films can be you know by no fault of the directors just you know in terms of whatever you know limitations of budget or whatever um, I think it's uh, extremely scary and fun and grotesque and uh, even sort of beautiful and sad movie. So, uh, good stuff. I haven't seen it for years, so I'm, I'm kind of interested to revisit it on the, the DVD I have. 
but I always preferred uh, Day of the Dead, actually. Well, I haven't seen Day of the Dead, but it's on my hard drive right now, so... And I quite enjoyed Land of the Dead also. Mm, that is also on my hard drive. I remember thinking when I first watched Dawn of the Dead, although I liked it, that I found the satire kind of heavy-handed. Mm. Um, but I think my mind might change about that uh, upon <laughs> reviewing it. It, it. honestly almost reminded me of a Fassbender film in parts. Mm. Uh, specifically, do you remember the sequence in Love is Colder Than Death when they go to the supermarket? I do. Sort of, that's a, it kind of gave me that vibe. And Actually, just... I think that reminded me of Dawn of the Dead when I watched uh, that Fassbender film. Well, there you go. So the loop is complete. Although I probably couldn't put my finger on it at the time, but I think I think I had the same connection. But good film. Uh, Romero is a good director, and I'm excited to watch more of his films. Mm. Um, <laughs> and then I turned. I I took from from uh, you know at this point in his career, uh, Romero was sort of based in uh, Pennsylvania and Pittsburgh specifically, and this film takes place in Pennsylvania, and I really love the use of like. You know the local color uh, to to influence the sort of mood and tone of the film too, um, but speaking of a film that is influenced by its the, the mood and tone of its setting, I watched a little film by our good friend William Friedkin, which is called "To Live and Die in L.A." <laughs> wow! Uh, which have you seen this one? I have not. Uh, Heard a lot about it. It's uh, fucking great. <laughs> I don't know what to say besides that. I mean, I do. I know what to say besides that. Uh, that, it, you know, this is just a, a film about uh, this Secret Service agent who is going after a uh, counterfeiter, this master counterfeiter played by Willem Dafoe in a great, like, performance. As William, Willem mm-hmm. Dafoe is pretty much always great, except for uh, in um, that shitty uh, <laughs> movie that we watched. <laughs> but besides that, he's, he's always pretty good. Uh, this is, he plays up, the, you know, there's something like sort of, I don't know, like, I feel like, few films really tap into how attractive he is as a person, you know? Mm-hmm. And, I mean, especially, you know, him being young in this, it really plays up the sort of eroticism of his face and, you know, his his natural, like, beauty and charisma. Um, and also really great is the lead performance by William Peterson. Uh, and I think possibly the <laughs> crazy, it's like a great, like, one-two punch, you know? You get this. This is his, like, first film role. And then he did Manhunter, and then he never made another good movie, as far as I could tell, which is insane. And um, then he became a journeyman TV actor. Yeah, but apparently uh, his his passion is the theater, so I can't I can't blame him too much. It's not crime scene investigation. <laughs> Surprise, you would say no, but um, this this film sort of I think rescues him from the impression that you get from watching him on that show and on on TV. Because uh, he's mm. really fantastic, and it, he gives a performance that's totally against the sort of um, I don't know, sort of brainy-ish persona that he built up in this, and also kind of in Manhunter too. Because uh, he's just like basically this uh, congealed bit of like masculine id um, who's just keeps on pushing things as far as they will go into like really icky and uncomfortable directions. Uh, and this one actually kind of reminded me of Uncut Gems a little bit. <laughs> and mm. then it's just about this this guy um, who his partner gets killed, as partners always do. Uh, and then basically he just makes a series of terrible decisions in order to catch, capture this uh, counterfeiter. Um, but there's a lot of this film has to sort of say about, like, um, I don't know, the the sort of addiction that comes with 
the power of you know being this like alpha male figure and how like destructive it is which is kind of you know i don't know like i feel like uh free kids kid i, I don't know it's hard to get a bit on him politically because i think that some of his movies feel sort of left-leaning and some of them feel right-leaning, I think. And obviously, uh, today, he's become sort of a conservative figure. But uh, Yeah, he's, he's, certainly, he's certainly veered back and forth between his uh, particular views. Uh, but this film feels very, like, left-wing to me. It just it makes this, you know... I mean, it's, it kind of reminded me of, like, something like um, The Wolf of Wall Street. And then it makes it feel... I mean, it, like, seduces you in, in feeling this rush and, like... Obviously, Freakin's always been somebody who's really good at creating sort of exciting sequences, and this film is like has a great chase sequence and some other great like action set pieces. Um, but it sort of uh, I don't know, like it really sort of you know shows how like monstrous you know these these men become in pursuing this like alpha male ideal, uh, and just sort of and it really like. It made that sound sort of like broad, but it also like nails the specificity of its time and it locates like Peterson's character as this like, you know, like Reaganite creation, basically, like really explicitly. And I think uh, by having those specific like markers on him, it, it makes it feel more, um, you know, like liberal or left leaning than, than some of his other films do. Um, and I think I think, you know, this this it is it is somewhat similar to The French Connection, which is also a film about like this sort of out of control police officer um but uh unlike that film which is sort of like which is this sort of like existential funk and you can sort of read that as being critical of of the main character's methods this film sort of like uh the rush just keeps going and it, it gets transferred to a different character and like the film almost becomes about how like um seductive and and like solo racing that rush is so good stuff. I really, really great. It's it's got great aesthetic. It's got this great soundtrack, and and it's really beautiful to look at too. By the curiously named Wang oh. Chung. Yeah, uh, which is a uh, British band. Yeah. Um, but uh, it's got just fantastic cinematography by Robbie Muir, who you know I think I could just say is probably the greatest cinematographer of all time, <laughs> based on the couple of films. The, or the films of him that I've seen. Um, that's that's an overstatement, of course. But he is really great, and pretty much all the movies of his that I've seen look really beautiful and and uh, perfect. So, I don't know. Great film. How is uh, our boy Dean Stockwell in it? Fresh from... <laughs> He's uh, actually... Not he has... fresh, but a few years after Human <laughs> Highway, his peak, he career a, peak. He has a kind of a strange role in this, because... Uh, freaking cast him as this sort of like LA like lawyer who's like totally corrupt and there's just something hmm. weird about seeing like Dean Stockwell like tanned and sort of like in these lawyer suits you know <laughs> I don't know <laughs> but he's, he's good uh, well have you been watching anything else you want to talk about or should we end this shit show nope I did learn something interesting though this is not really related to the podcast we can end the podcast and play the, the music or whatever now of Brown Horse. Uh,